Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This is a North Korean pattern. For decades, you ratchet up the tension, you get everyone scared, and then you suddenly dial it back and you play nice. Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il did this when he was dictator. His grandfather, Kim Il-sung, did it when he was dictator. Kim Jong-un. The U.S.-North Korea summit was a triumph of showbiz over substance, and Mr. Trump made big concessions for no return. Is how the cover of The Economist magazine put it. We are indeed living in surreal times. Lots to talk about here, so do stay with us. This week's episode is made possible by Elwood Thompson's, let me repeat, the best market in Virginia at the top of Richmond's Carytown, feeding the soul of the RVA community. You will see me there almost every morning for breakfast and those delicious Blanchard coffees, cold brew, kombucha, you name it. I've lately been getting this peanut butter chocolate spread. Um, I am there on Indian Wednesdays, sometimes on Friday. There's a Mexican buffet. I love the owners. I love the staff. I highly recommend that you visit this place and get a taste for how powerful small biz and real local RVA can be. Visit them at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from China is none other than David Rennie, the Beijing bureau chief at The Economist. He penned this week's iconic cover. I mean, I chuckle every time I look at it. It says, Kim Jong-un. The Singapore summit was a triumph of showbiz over substance, and Donald Trump made big concessions for no return. How are you, good sir? I'm well. I have to ask. We kind of shake our heads like the Aflac duck whenever uh, our, our president here pulls off a stunt like this, and things kind of become more surreal progressively every week. To what extent were you kind of shaking your head? Like, you, you surely want to go into this with an open mind. Donald Trump has billed himself as a deal maker, But to the extent he was willing to come in there and salute generals and shake hands and, and suddenly all of this Twitter vitriol is forgiven and forgotten and he's best friends with the despotic ruler of North Korea. Yeah, so actually I wrote uh, part of this week's piece and but also the week before. And, and what we said the week before was that there was a real risk that Donald Trump could do a bad deal that he could walk into a trap that the North Koreans might lay for him, which would be to say, the thing that really worries you, surely, is missiles with nuclear warheads that could hit America. So why don't we scrap those missiles? But you shouldn't begrudge us if we want to keep a few nuclear bombs of our own. We live in a dangerous neighborhood. And that, we thought, was the worst possible outcome uh, that could come from this summit. And we were too optimistic, because I think that although he didn't fall into that trap, he did a couple of things that really could have some quite bad long-term consequences. I mean, we should say having a summit, meeting the guy, getting him to engage and explain what he wants is not in and of itself a terrible idea. And you could argue that basically this summit was a kind of nothing burger, that they really didn't agree anything at all, uh, even as went as far well, as let me correct you. It's, it, was a, it was a bulgogi burger. Uh, but go ahead. That is possible. So, it's, <laughs> but it's but it's uh, but it is true that uh, it's better to talk than to be threatening military strikes or uh, planning a war that could lead to you know unimaginable casualties, which is what would happen if you had a war on the Korean Peninsula. So, and there is now a process where the two sides will sit down and talk, and and that's the right path. So, why were we at the Economist so concerned? Why did we say on the cover that? Kim Jong-un, the brutal, murderous dictator of North Korea, won this summit. Well, the real reason for that is that he got a big win the moment he sat down uh, with the president of the United States. Uh, Donald Trump says he doesn't care about this point, but it matters. 
I've been covering North Korea for many years. I'm sitting in Beijing where people watch North Korea very closely. This town is full of North Koreans um, and analysts and diplomats. American presidents have always known that the leaders of North Korea wanted to sit down and have a meeting as equals, that that would be a huge propaganda win within their own system. And that is exactly why American presidents have always said no. They've always said, no, 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 you've, you've got to do a really serious nuclear deal before you get the reward of sitting down as an equal with an American president. Donald Trump gave them that win, that massive propaganda win, in exchange for precisely nothing. And we thought that that was as bad as it got. But then really the thing that I'm sure many of your listeners will have seen bits of was the press conference that Donald Trump gave in Singapore. And that's where we got really anxious because Donald Trump said some things that were not on this rather flimsy piece of paper explaining what the deal was, that he had offered Kim Jong-un as concessions. And one of them was a gigantic concession, which was Donald Trump said, we will not be holding any more provocative war games that cost America a ton of money while the negotiations are going well. I, I have to ask you that because my eyes kind of you know bulged out of my head when I read this. Aren't you supposed to run this by South Korea and Japan before you even intimate that you, kind of as a background, as a parenthetical offering? To North Korea. I mean, these are our bulwark. Uh, uh, these are these are our redoubts, our allies there that we probably are contractually obligated to run this through them. Okay, so you have just correctly named item one of about a hundred reasons on the list of why that was a bad thing to say. So I, here's the thing: America has always had military exercises with the military in South Korea for the very good reason that the two armies are there to stop North Korea invading and attacking, killing lots of people. Since the end of the Korean War with an uneasy armistice and this incredibly sort of fortified line across the middle of a divided Korea, there have been tens of thousands, currently 30,000 American troops uh, alongside uh, a very large South Korean army, and they are treaty allies. If anyone attacks South Korea, the Americans are there to help fight them back. And remember that Seoul, the modern bustling capital of South Korea, is within artillery fire range of tens of thousands of North Koreans. The Americans are there completely legitimately with a UN mandate that comes back from the end of the Korean War, and they are there as treaty allies. And the reason they have what Donald Trump called war games, which is the language of the Chinese and the North Koreans, not what Americans call them. They call them exercises. Military why exercises, do they have those? yes. Yeah. Why, why do they have those exercises? Well, one big reason is that the South Korean army uh, contains lots of conscripts. Basically, when you're of student age, when you leave college or leave high school in South Korea, you go into the army for a while. And because it's a conscript army and they only serve, you know, 18 months, two years, if they don't train alongside the professional American soldiers of the U.S. Army, then they they won't know how to fight alongside them in a war. So you really cannot suspend the exercises for very long before you really start messing up the military readiness of that joint U.S.-South Korean force. So that's you're and then, quite right, a, yeah, not I have to say, Dave, the South Koreans in advance. Well, David, in another concession, I, I, you know, if you read between the lines of, of, of this guy, kind of talks off the cuff. For example, when he's opposite the table, he's saying, "Take pictures of us to make us look thin." There's already a curb your enthusiasm spoof of that up on, on Twitter. But um, I, I think that he he winked and said that a very fabulous, you know, uh, guy in 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 Beijing is kind of looking the other way while trade is already eased on the border with North Korea. And I imagine that that is a massive thing. I mean, you wrote here that, indeed, China lost no time in pointing out that it was first to propose a, quote, freeze-for-freeze freeze deal. No military exercises, no nuclear tests. Previous American administrations refused this gambit because it equated legal and legitimate operations by allies with an illicit weapons program 
condemned by the UN. They were also well aware that Beijing was self-interestedly seeking to see a big chunk of America's presence in Asia negotiated away. Now, an American president who sees alliances as a costly burden rather than a source of strength has given it what it wanted, at least for a while. The outcome of the summit, said a spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry, is what China has been looking forward to and striving for all along. Um, From a pure kind of business school negotiations perspective, did we just cede, uh, you know, many of our, our, our pressure, our leverage points? We did, and I wrote every single one of those words. And what's even more worrying is why Donald Trump did it. Now, if you take at face value what he says, which is obviously not always the right thing to do, but he explained in the press conference that he thinks that those military exercises are very provocative, which is the North Korean perspective and the Chinese perspective, and that they cost a ton of money. And I think that takes us back to, if you remember, the Donald Trump of the campaign trail, who explained again and again that the idea that America has alliances that the idea that America is a member of NATO, that it has troops in South Korea and Japan and bases all over the world, isn't a source of strength, which is what every single American president since World War II has said and believed. But Donald Trump, completely breaking with that tradition, says, they're a cost. Why are we paying for this? What chumps and idiots we must be to be paying for our bases overseas. I'm going to bring the troops home. And that is music to the ears of people who do not like America. Who's really happy to hear Donald Trump talking about the costs of having troops in South Korea and how provocative war games are? North Korea, China, Russia. These are not countries you want cheering you on when you've given this kind of uh, press conference. Who was very shaken? The South Koreans, although they were basically mostly glad that the summit had taken place. The Japanese, absolutely terrified of what happens next, because they're not sure that this American president actually cares about the alliances that have kept their bit of Asia peaceful for 70 years. David, I have to ask you, um, going back to this, I, I find uh, a difficult time interpreting, at least on the Twitter t- uh, timeline, what happened in terms of moral suasion and behind the scenes between, um, I, I guess, the North Korean dictator calling Donald Trump a dotard, which I had to look up, and Donald Trump firing back and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, there was this detente of words. And next thing I remember, he's crossing the DMZ and shaking the hands of the South Korean premier. And suddenly there's this, you know, all these thousand uh, flowers of peace are blossoming into the spring. Um, Do you know anything? Did you get any sort of tip of the hand that someone behind the scenes, be it China or Russia or another player, said that there might be a, 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 an inkling of a grand bargain or some other reason for both sides to kind of reconsider their belligerence? No, the opposite. So when Donald Trump uh, said he was going to meet Kim Jong-un, that took everyone by surprise, including the Chinese, who actually at the time were pretty cross. Uh, and senior Chinese officials said to Americans who told me that they felt almost betrayed that they had been sort of bounced into this Uh, news that Donald Trump, who until five minutes earlier had been twisting China's arm as hard as he could to put extra sanctions on North Korea, suddenly when the South Koreans, if you remember the genesis was that uh, the South Korean National Security Advisor came to the White House uh, to meet uh, his opposite numbers, not in fact to meet Donald Trump, to talk about contacts they had been having with the North Koreans. He was invited upstairs to meet uh, Donald Trump and explained that when his president, Moon Jae-in of South Korea, had met Kim Jong-un, that they had had a message that North Korea wanted to meet face-to-face. And Donald Trump said, yes, I'll do it. No one expected him to do that. Uh, 
Uh, it was completely impulsive. And so we've now been kind of rolling through the weeks following with the Americans having these secret contacts that we now know more about between the CIA mostly and North Koreans. And their big demand was, okay, you've got this big reward, which is the American president is going to meet your leader, but you have to have to at least get us back to the last time there was a deal between America and North Korea, which was a sworn promise from North Korea to do what the, the jargon is, complete, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization. That was where they got to in 2005, the last time they had a deal that then fell apart. And so the Americans talking in advance of this meeting said, that is the minimum to get us to the table. When you look at the piece of paper that came out of the Singapore summit, those words were not in it. So basically, Donald Trump, in order to get that meeting that he was very, very confident that he had the charm and the kind of menace combined to do a deal that no one else had ever been able to do, that getting to that meeting was worth conceding every single thing that the North Koreans uh, were asking. So that's kind of how we got to well, this let, point. Well, let's talk cynically. You spent quite a uh, quite quite some time in Washington. What's the downside for Donald Trump? This builds his stature too. As you know, many Americans don't think of his presidency as especially legitimate. He's scandal plagued. He has a high disapproval rating. It would t- it would stand to reason that it would only build his stature, and he has nothing to lose really as a businessman and a self credited deal maker to go abroad and and do the antipodal opposite of what several administrations behind him did. Sure. So let's roll this back to the moment that Donald Trump is elected president and is surprised to find himself in the Oval Office meeting President Barack Obama for a kind of handover conversation two days after the election. We know now that one of the things that Barack Obama said to him was, there is no issue that is more dangerous that is going to be at the top of your entry than North Korea, because North Korea seems to be getting much further ahead with nuclear weapons than we expected. It's happening faster. They're getting closer to the kind of missiles that could carry those weapons to American shores. And so in that kind of handover meeting, the mandate was passed to Donald Trump. So he came in pretty serious about this. And actually, to give Donald Trump some credit, he did really toughen up the coalition of pressure, the sanctions uh, at the UN on North Korea. So throughout the whole of that first year of Donald Trump's presidency in 2017, you could give Team Trump some credit that they took the policy that they basically inherited from George W. Bush and Barack Obama of trying to press particularly China, which controls 90% of trade with North Korea, um, to really ratchet up the pressure to try and force the North Koreans to the table. They did a pretty good job with that. Where it started to get very bumpy, as you're absolutely right, we had that exchange of kind of nuclear threats, whose nuclear button is bigger than whose, and dotard, and, you know, little rocket man, and sick puppy, and all of that stuff. That was happening because the North Korean leader was really doing an incredibly intense uh, regimen of, of missile tests and nuclear tests, far more tests than we'd seen in that kind of short space of time. And there was a sense around October, November last year, when I was still Washington bureau chief, that when I spoke to people in the government in America, they were really, really scared that this was getting out of hand. They couldn't really see how this was going to be stopped. You had the military threats being made by the Americans. Then it suddenly changed. Uh, You saw this extraordinary peace effort made by the South Koreans. Uh, You saw the Winter Olympics, remember, was a kind of sense of a breakthrough. Sure. We've seen this pattern for decades. Remember, Kim Jong-un is a hereditary Stalinist dictator, and his father and grandfather before him, Kim Jong-il and Kim Il-sung, they did exactly the same game. You ratchet up the tensions. You know, they've done things in the past like sink South Korean naval ships. 
blows South Korean airliners out of the sky. And then just when everyone thinks there's going to be a war, you suddenly play nice. And we saw this happening again with the Winter Olympics and then these peace talks with South Korea. And so that's how we ended up in this place. And, and you know, we should say it's better to be having summits in Singapore than be as worried about war as we were at the end of 2017. The real danger, as I said, is the disdain that Donald Trump revealed that he feels for the entire alliance structure that has America at its heart. Now, apart from anything else, if this deal really goes wrong, and if North Korea drags its feet and basically refuses to give up its nuclear weapons, and in the meantime, Donald Trump's administration keeps freezing out the Japanese and the South Koreans, its treaty allies, the thing that really terrifies the diplomats and officials I speak to here in Beijing is that at some point, if it really goes wrong and there is still a nuclear North Korea and America is cutting and running, then if you're South Korea, certainly if you're Japan, maybe even Taiwan, you start to think, well, maybe we need our own nuclear weapons. This is such a dangerous neighborhood. We need our own nukes. And Japan could get nukes very, very fast. In technical terms, they have the ability to get a nuke very fast. Politically, it's obviously more sensitive. But then you're into an Asian arms race with nuclear armed powers flying around. And that is just a terrifying prospect. And we haven't even discussed the South China Sea. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to David Rennie. He helped pen uh, the blockbuster cover of The Economist this week. Kim Jong-un dealing with North Korea. Trump puts showmanship first. Uh, I have to ask you, um, when I think about this, there's a stat. And let's look southward to South Korea for a second. There's this stat that keeps blowing my mind, that South Korea and Ghana were at economic parity in 1957. And then in the past, you know, the decade since, South Korea has been able to catapult itself to becoming maybe the 12th or 13th largest economy in the world with a trade volume of over a trillion dollars per year. And it has me wondering about, you know, however whimsical and fantastical it is, this prospect of uh, reunification. And what would a North Korea be worth to a South Korea and the developed world and Japan and everybody else, if theoretically, and it's a long shot, and I will get all the boilerplate and disclaimers in front of you, if it could be acquired in a in a in a friendly manner, a, 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 a friendly buyout, and let Kim go and tour the world and be paparazzi and have another taste of what he experienced in Singapore. So here's the problem, and you know I have not been in North Korea since 2000, but you know I've I've been covering this story for a long time. I have been to North Korea and. I've been to South Korea many times, including very recently. Here's the problem. This isn't just like East Germany and West Germany, uh, where the gap between the two countries was big, but it wasn't insane. Uh, and they were basically, you know, just they disagreed profoundly about ideology and they had different allies and they had terrible cars on one side and great cars on the other side. North Korea is not just a dictatorship. North Korea is a cult. It's a death cult. The people of North Korea are unbelievably isolated they have been trained to believe that they are, in some sense, all children, that the Kim family are their parents, uh, are the only people who can keep them safe. Uh, when you go to North Korea, the things they don't know about the world are just kind of stunning. Um, I was talking to a diplomat today. Uh, the pictures that the Nodong Shimbun, the main state newspaper, ran of the meeting is the first time many ordinary North Koreans have ever seen Donald Trump's face because they have no other way of seeing it. It's not been on North Korean state TV. It's not been in North Korea's uh, state newspapers. And if you're one of the North Koreans who watches illicit videos smuggled in on thumb drives, you're risking your life. You could be executed for that or sent to a labor camp and your whole family sent to a labor camp. Um, 
But David, what if, what if, extent- and again, you're indulging me and, and, you know, there's an element of kind of straw man to this. What if this is ultimately not Kim Jong-un's jam? What if, okay, I inherited this from my father and my mother and these generals are barking at me and, and, and that famous world, word for kind of North Korean defiance. But actually, I love Michael Jordan. I love Dennis Rodman. I love the intoxication of traveling the world. And, you know, I, I did have some modicum of Western education. What if he is open to that siren call? Is there any indication that he could be? So you have got to hope, I think, something less ambitious than that. The, 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 the most optimistic I think anyone is, is that maybe he looks at China, which is getting rich, but isn't opening up, which is still a dictatorship. And he thinks, huh, so maybe if I open up, it doesn't mean I'll be killed immediately in my bed. Uh, maybe I could risk a bit of economic opening, keep my people happy with some kind of, you know, some more economic wealth. But this is a regime. Remember, this is the guy who killed his own uncle. Uh, this is the guy who killed his own half-brother with a nerve agent uh, in an airport in Malaysia. If you want a sign of how paranoid they are... Well, he traveled. He did, he did travel with his own personal toilet in Singapore, did he not? Yeah, and there was a little moment when the press were waiting for the two president, well, President uh, Trump and Chairman Kim to sign this agreement that this North Korean uh, official with latex gloves comes and carefully wipes down the pen. Now, that is that is not a strange thing to do. If in very recent memory, you are the dictator who had killer agents put a poisonous nerve agent and kill your own half-brother in an airport in Kuala Lumpur. So this is a guy who poisons his own family to death. Uh, and so he's, of course, he's worried about holding that pen. So there's a real sense that I've interviewed defectors from North Korea who've gone to the South, and they almost have to kind of deprogram them, just like people being brought out of a cult. The gap is terrifying. And one of the things that we've seen in South Korea is the younger generation rather doubtful that they want to reunify fully with North Korea. When you look at the opinion polls, people are kind of ambivalent. Sure, they'd like the threat to go away, but they'd sort of maybe like to stay two countries. They're not sure that North Koreans are kind of compatible with them. They, they really don't feel that they share that much culture. There's currently euphoria a bit in South Korea about the idea of reunification, but this is it's important for your listeners to realize this is far, far worse than any other dictatorship uh, on earth. I mean, I've covered, you know, many, many dictatorships. I've been to some really horrible countries, but North Korea is something else. It's like a kind of, it's like being on the sort of film set of a sort of dystopian movie. It's, it's, everything is uh, a show, a facade. People are absolutely terrified of talking to you as a foreigner. Uh, Everywhere you go, you are watched to a degree that is you know, not found anywhere else. 100,000, more than 100,000 people in a country of 25 million uh, live in labor camps. Uh, You can have, if you're sent to a labor camp, not only are you sent, but your entire family, your kids are sent to these labor camps, perhaps indefinitely. And you can be sent there for crimes like not uh, hanging a photograph of the great leader respectfully on your wall if it's kind of tilted or dusty. That could get you sent to a labor camp. I have to ask you, what what is Mr. Kim worth? All right, I, I don't quite understand. I mean, obviously, the the economy. What what is there? The economy is the only planning is the central planning, and I imagine um, much of the rents must have accrued to him and his father and his grandfather. So this is a desperately poor, bankrupt country. I mean, look at the satellite pictures of North Korea and South Korea at night. South Korea is a blaze of light. North Korea is basically dark. Um, there are people, you know, children in North Korea are stunted by malnutrition. You know, they look four or five years younger than they should when you see them because they've had such terrible diets. But the elite of the elite 
they live extraordinarily well. So you're quite right. Kim Jong-un, the current dictator, uh, went to school at an expensive boarding school in Switzerland. Uh, his father, when he was still alive, Kim Jong-il, uh, we know for a fact that he had sort of fine wine tastes. He would have fine wines flown in by diplomatic bag. He would have fresh French cheeses flown in. Uh, we know that he I, had... I believe he terrorized his sushi chef who defected and, and told all. That's right. And also his Italian pizza chef. So we know this because the Italian pizza chef actually left freely. They, they said, OK, you've, you've done well. You can go now. Uh, but he wrote that, you know, he ran an entire attack. Father Kim Jong-il fancied a fresh pizza. Uh, Kim Jong-il was a film buff who kidnapped his favorite South Korean movie director and forced him to make a Korean version of Godzilla. Uh, we know this because he finally managed to run away and brought with him hours of taped conversations with Kim Jong-il kind of shooting the breeze. Underpinning this, remember, is a lot of murder, uh, murder and repression and these terrible labor camps where if you're seen as having bad blood, being from a disloyal family, you can spend the rest of your life starving to death in one of these concentration camps. But still, this could not uh, exist anymore in a vacuum. We do hear that China is the ultimate parent company of this bizarre operation. I mean, the coal, the, the modicum of trade, um, uh, military alliance, the vestiges of kind of the old Cold War uh, symmetry, that if he were to look north and see China where you could have an autocracy where you know, almost 30 years after Tiananmen Square, this has been a miraculous economy bringing millions of people out of poverty. I think the threat to him might be bringing those people out of poverty and open their eyes to it. It's just a much harder uh, uh, system to grow out of. That's right. So China plays a double game. So China has some benign instincts, which is it would like to make North Korea take the same path that they did of, you know, as you say, grow the economy, but you don't have to open up politically. China has also played a very, very cynical game. Why is North Korea still standing? It's because uh, China keeps the oil flowing. Uh, it provides basically all of the energy uh, that keeps any lights on, such as they are in North Korea. Why does China do that? Because China wants a buffer between the American troops in South Korea and its own border. Never mind that any number of American governments have said to the Chinese, come on, guys, be serious. If there was a reunification, we wouldn't send American troops north of the 38th parallel. There aren't going to be uh, GIs in Oakley sunglasses on the banks of the Yalu River. <laughs> we could do that deal. But the Chinese do not trust the Americans. They quite like the fact that it ties the Americans up. They quite like the fact that it's a nuisance for the Americans. The Americans have been saying a reasonably smart thing to the Chinese for the last couple of years. And Donald Trump's team have been saying it with much more force in some ways, which is, you think that North Korea is a strategic asset for you because it ties us up and it's your ally. We're here to tell you that it's a strategic liability, that mm. if it keeps down this path of testing these weapons that could hit us with nuclear weapons, we will not let that happen. And we will do things that you will not like. Those could be sanctioning Chinese oil companies that are supplying them with oil. It could be even more American weaponry and soldiers in South Korea. Remember, the Chinese are very, very upset about things like some very advanced radar that the Americans installed in South Korea recently that allows them to have some defenses against missile attacks. Those radars are so powerful, that they can see quite a long way into China. Chinese military hates that. The American reply, which is reasonably logical, is if you don't like us being there in such force and with such weaponry, fix the North Korean problem and we'll go away. Uh, we don't need to have all of those most advanced weapons there. The Chinese have been playing a double game. 
The Chinese do dislike North Koreans setting off missiles and testing and making the Americans so annoying, giving the Americans an excuse to be there in such numbers. But if you ask the Chinese to choose between a North Korean ally that is that buffer between them and South Korea, force them to choose between that and the nuclear North Korean program, they have consistently chosen stability over dealing with the nukes. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to The Economist David Rennie. He helped pen the cover this week. Kim Jong-un, dealing with North Korea, Trump puts showmanship first. The subhead said the summit was a triumph of showbiz over substance, and Mr. Trump made big concessions for no return. In the few minutes we have left, David, close us out. What are the questions that are not being asked? It's a very, uh, as you could say, in kind of the afterhaze of this, it's really hard to interpret. Okay, we got a one-pager, um, there is goodwill that's restored on both sides, but we don't know what else to kind of sink our teeth into. Trusting North Korean words is a mugs game. Uh, promising to scrap nuclear weapons. Then they even offer Donald Trump in Singapore. They did it in the 1990s. They did it again in 2005. Absolute promises to scrap nuclear weapons. So the words don't count. Actions count. You should start to see inspectors being allowed into North Korea. You should see North Korea offering a list of its nuclear sites. We're seeing none of that. So here's a really dangerous dynamic. If you ask Donald Trump and his people, why should we believe that North Korea has changed and that you can trust them this time? They answer a different question, which is, well, why is Donald Trump uniquely intimidating and charming and persuasive? So what that, you know, so Donald Trump said his own press conference, you know, it's different this time because there's a different president. It's me. Well, what they're really saying there is that Donald Trump's prestige is proved by North Korea behaving itself. Why is that so dangerous? Well, if you're an American official and you see evidence of North Korea not behaving itself, or you want to say that there's not actually this much in the deal or that the latest meeting has gone really badly, you're then effectively saying the boss isn't as intimidating and charming as he thinks he is, that actually we're back into the same old, same old, and North Korea can't be trusted. And Donald Trump at the moment is absolutely incensed when anyone suggests that this is a bad deal, because he takes that as a personal insult, doubting his own power. But David, of David, what about the hawks? What about the hawks in the Beltway in the Republican camp? I mean, the ones who back him on on uh, spending lavishly on the military. I mean, there seems to be no love lost for a person like you know Kim Jong Un or his father or his legacy. Why isn't that a check on the system? I mean, even though he gets his own guy in the State Department. Even though he's being able to mold it out of his own worldview, you'd think, you'd think that more people on the Hill would be really skeptical, even on the right wing. So it's a remarkable thing, isn't it? So your listeners may remember Senator Tom Cotton when he was a freshman senator. He made a name for himself by writing to the leaders of Iran mm. and saying, this deal that uh, Barack Obama is trying to broker with you, the Senate may not agree with it. And in which case you may find that Obama will leave office and we'll just tear this deal up and you won't have a deal. So an amazing thing for a senator to do. Tom Cotton, same guy who says, you know, it's disgusting when Barack Obama talks to dictators like the Cuban leaders or talks to the Iranians. He was asked this week about the, the meeting with Kim Jong-un and he was like, oh, no, no, that's fine. That's fine because, the you know, not talking to dictators is the right thing to do until they have nuclear weapons that could hit America, in which case it's fantastic to speak to them. And as long as, you know, they keep down the right path and as long as we see some real, res real results. Seeing the same Republican hawks, uber hawks, who denounced previous uh, administrations for talking to dictators, once it is Donald Trump talking to dictators, they think that's absolutely fine. And I fear I cannot, in my mind, separate that from the fact that their own voters 
adore Donald Trump. And if you criticize Donald Trump as a Republican, you run the risk of losing a primary uh, to get reelected. David Rennie of The Economist, I cannot thank you enough. It is it is well past midnight your time in China. And on the fly, you joined us and helped unpack this wonderful cover you did on Kim Jong-un and the surreal summit between Donald Trump and his counterpart in North Korea, which was held in Singapore. We're still trying to wrap our heads around it. Thank you so much, sir. A pleasure. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to The Economist magazine setting this up on the fly out of Asia. We are on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Subscribe and love us. Trust us. Verify us. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.